welcome to the 12th episode of the Loose Threads podcast. Joining me today is Stephen Allen, the founder of his eponymous brand, which he started as a retail store in 1994 in New York and grew into the international brand it is today. We had a great talk about what it was like building the Stephen Allen empire over the last two decades, how he stayed focused as a landscape continually changed from the emergence of the internet to Amazon to new direct-to-consumer brands that are popping up all over the place. And what's next for the brand as they reinvent themselves in 2017? Here's my talk with Stephen Allen. So I'm curious kind of how Stephen Allen started. I started in business doing a different business, which was a watch business. I used to make watches and I would travel to Switzerland, to Basel, and I was doing it for my parents. They had a jewelry store on the Upper West Side and my father's a jeweler, and it was kind of fun, and I would tinker around with these different dials in the hands and the parts, and it was great, and I got a sense of what it was like to create things and sell them, and then, I don't know if you remember, but swatches around 1993 were a phenomenon, and Swiss and Italians were coming to the U.S. and buying them up like crazy amounts of money for these collectible watches, so I started selling collectible swatches, not because I had an interest in collectible swatches, but I was in the kind of the watch business and it was just one of these things that just swept over the whole industry. I used to see fine watch jewelry stores selling swatch in the window. It was crazy on Fifth Avenue and everyone was getting involved. And so I thought this would be a, kind of an easy way to do it. Actually, it was my mother. She was the one who sort of put the seed in my head to start and I didn't feel right about it. And I said, how can we do this? You know, cause they were offered swatch in their store and they turned it down because they thought it was too cheap. Hmm. But then she's like, no, you need to get them because people want to come in. And it was, let's say a watch retails for $80. The market price might be $300 for oh. it, but it was very, very hard to get. You know, if they shipped a hundred watches, maybe one would be collectible. So everyone wanted those. So it wasn't like you just go into a store and buy 20 of these watches you know, they would be sold out. So you had to develop these connections. And for me, it was really fun. And in the beginning, it was all the stores in New York. And that was my morning trip as I would go to Bloomingdale's and Macy's and South Street Seaport and all these different stores and see what I could get. And then eventually New York City dried up and I started going around the country hmm. to Texas and Hawaii and all these places. And I started developing relationships with different dealers felt very sketchy. It was, it was legal, but it felt kind of strange. And then how did that kind of evolve into the boutique and then into kind of Stephen Allen as it is today? So I was doing that business and then eventually it was just like, I couldn't do it anymore. I was living in a studio apartment and I had thousand watches next to my bed and the ticking was driving me crazy. It was like <laughs> rain, you know, all the time in the house. So, and I had to get another apartment in the building just so I could go to sleep because wow. it was too much. And two of the people that worked for me, they had a friend that was going out of business in Soho. They had a store and it was like a Japanese, like Hello Kitty and stuff like that. And so the rent seemed really reasonable to me. It was a weird location at the time. Today, you'd say it was super prime. It was on Wooster and Broom, hmm. but there were bars on the windows. There was graffiti all over the building. And the rent was, I think, 2100 a month wow. for about 500 feet. And uh, so I was like, okay, what's there to lose? I right. mean, this is like, I can open the store. It'll also be my office. And so I started selling, I knew the jewelry and I knew the watches and I didn't really know much about clothing. And so I started getting in some lines of, I went to some trade shows and 
bought some lines of clothing and sure enough the clothing kind of bombed and the jewelry and accessories did well and it really bummed me out and I was like well why aren't people buying the clothing you know what is it and there was nothing wrong with the clothing it's just that there was nothing really special about the clothing Mm -hmm. and it wasn't until I really developed a niche in terms of what I liked and what I wanted to do with clothing and was able to sort of prove concept that it started to take off and that took a while but essentially it was a few like articles that had been written but I had a couple people that came in that were accessory designers a handbag designer and you know she said oh my friend makes these great pants would you want to see them and you know that was a brand called Daryl K you know like around 1995 or so and she had a little store in the East Village and she was making them and her husband came and delivered them to my store and Hmm. we started selling those and then we started really becoming known for pioneering all these independent brands. And that's really how it started was that, and I stopped going to trade shows and I realized, you know, there's nothing here that I really liked. What I really like is discovering brands and pioneering them and having something that feels to me really special. And that wasn't happening coming from the garment industry. If you were to kind of survey that time in terms of where the garment industry was and kind of where it was specifically in New York, like, How would you sum that up in a way of when you first started? Well, the garment industry was it. I mean, that was kind of like if you're making products in New York, you're making it usually. I mean, I guess some people did it in Chinatown. I never knew anyone that did. But the garment industry was really for small business, really, because when you're huge, you know, you're you're usually taking it offshore to China or whatever. And I didn't know anything about it. I didn't study design in school or anything. And so I just walked the garment center. I figured, okay, maybe I'll find something here. And there were these jobbers there and the jobbers, you know, it was interesting and they just had rolls of fabric and I went in there and I was like, okay, how much is this? And they're like telling me a price, whatever, you know, $5 a yard or $10 a yard. And I bought a roll of fabric and then I went into a button store and, you know, I knew I wanted to make some shirts initially. And I asked them, I was like, well, who can make these shirts? And then they said, oh, there's a factory right above us. And there's one across the street. And I just started going, you know, kind of door to door and knocking on factory doors and seeing what they can do. And I started out that way. And then it took me about a year before I realized that, okay, you know what? There's specialists, like not every factory that is a sewing factory can make men's pants well, you know, even though they all tell you they can. (laughs) So you really have to find the best in class for each category that you want to make. And that's really how it started. Is it fair to say that at that time, kind of the most profitable method for an independent designer like that was to sell to a boutique or a department store or something that this whole direct-to-consumer thing really didn't exist? And that was, is that fair to say that that was the Yeah, avenue? yeah, absolutely. It was very traditional in that sense. You either had your own boutique and sold it in your boutique or you sold it to other small boutiques. And some people sold to department stores, but really the kind of stuff that I was doing and the, and the other brands that I was selling the department stores weren't buying those brands. They were really buying big garment center brands. And the nature of the department store business is also very different because many department stores require guaranteed sell-throughs and markdown money and consignment inventory. And these are all things that for a small designer oftentimes are impossible. So for us, we were kind of the alternative to that. The boutique started first and then the clothing kind of soon followed after or they started? No. So the boutique started first and then what happened next was some of the brands that we were carrying were being approached by other retailers 
and they didn't know how to wholesale because mm. it was a new thing for them. They just started making clothes. I found them and we started selling them and it seemed evident that there really wasn't anyone that was focused on representing these small independent brands. So I started a showroom business next, wow. which is interesting because people always think that I'm a designer. Like I went to design school and I had my collection did like fashion shows and then I opened stores or something, you know, and it's, it was the opposite. So starting out as a multi-brand retailer, then representing designers, then making my own brand. And so the stores opened in 94, the showroom opened in 97. Mm -hmm. You know, again, that was a business that I didn't know anything about and, you know, lost money for a few years and tricky business because when you're representing designers, you know, you're meeting with customers and you're taking orders for goods that are going to be shipped, let's say eight months later. And so if they're shipped eight months later, then they're getting paid in nine months later, which means right. then they're paying us in 10 months later. But yet we have to pay our rent. We have to pay our salaries. So where does that come from? So in my case, it was, it was all part of the same company. So the showroom would loan money to the store. The store would loan money to the showroom. It was a bit of a financial nightmare because <laughs> I had never worked in the industry. I didn't really understand when I started how, how it worked. And so there was some catch up there. Gotcha. Was factoring a thing back then or not as yeah, much? Yeah, factoring has always been around. Yeah. And um, that's just, I feel like as long as there's been designers selling, there's probably been factors people loaning the money, financing yeah. it. And there's different ways to factor. Some people factor your purchase orders from the beginning. Some people just factor them kind of when they're ready to ship. Gotcha. And so, okay, you have the boutique, you have the showroom, and then how do you get to So clothing? then what happened was, and it was really focused mostly on women's, on accessories hmm. and women's clothes. And then what happened was the whole store was only 500 feet and I had a little mezzanine space that was kind of like used for stock. And then I moved the stock into the basement and put some shelves in the basement. And so we had this empty space. And I thought, okay, this will be good for men's. And we can put men's up here again. I was like, okay, well, what am I going to sell? Like which men's where? And it was the same question. And I didn't want to go to the trade shows because I knew that the, at that time men's clothes was either streetwear logos all over it, or it was kind of like formal suiting mm -hmm. or club clothes, but there really wasn't what I wanted, which was a brand that had good fitting clothes that felt relevant, that were not logo driven, that had to me an American sensibility, but not necessarily a like Brooks Brothers or Ralph Lauren sensibility, mm -hmm. but, but something that felt more current to sort of life downtown or whether you live in downtown New York or you live in Chicago or whatever, but something that felt more relevant to, to myself. Relative to where it is today, what was that line like in those early days? Do you like when you look at the pieces, are they similar? Is it evolved? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of similar. It was just a lot smaller. It was a lot fewer pieces, hmm. but I guess I always think about it. For example, like the pants that I was making, I found a factory that did police uniforms. Hmm. So I just called the pants the police pant. That was the first pant I ever made. And it was just this like durable twill fabric. And, you know, there's usually that kind of the coin pocket that's mm -hmm. typically like no one really uses it for anything. Yeah. <laughs> so we had to make a much larger coin pocket, but it was a little bit lower. Hmm. And also what was interesting about that factory that other factories couldn't really do is they had this grip. It was like rubber on the inside of the waistband. So when you hmm. tuck your shirt in, it kind of oh, stays in, you know, it was just, I forget what they called it, but 
It was another factory that we worked with, guy from Italy, and he made these fantastic suits. And so we focused really on blazers there and things like that. And then this other factory in New Jersey that did shirts and, you know, really old world, great shirting. But I always thought you should know that it's ours, that it's a Stephen Allen item without necessarily seeing the logo. And that's always been kind of a thing. Totally. So the proportions, even the fusibles that we use, things like that. Okay. And so we have now a boutique, a showroom and a clothing line and we're in mid to late nineties. Yeah. So the line started around 99, I think, or 2000, but it really started out, I, I guess you wouldn't say it was a collection. You'd mm-hmm. probably say, well, you're doing some private label Pro- pieces. Right. And that's how I viewed it. I, I didn't really view it as a collection. We certainly didn't have presentations or runway shows or anything like that. It was just it was like I couldn't find it, so I made that to sort of supplement right. everything else. And it was just men's, and it was upstairs in the store, and it was like shirts and pants and some blazers. And then that grew into a few more things. And then we would have some girls coming in the store, and they were frustrated. They're like, why don't you have shirts for girls? And so then they would buy the extra small shirts, and they would wear them kind of long as like tunics. Mm. And then we had more. Which is back custom. today, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we, you know, more shirt dresses and and then we started building on that. And each thing, though, sounds really easy. And it's very like, yeah, so we just started doing that. But the reality was it was very costly to do yeah. that because every time we would shift, you know, and pivot the business and add something, it meant hiring more people. And, you know, we didn't really have a huge amount of scale. You know, we just had that store and, and we didn't wholesale really to department stores. So we had the infrastructure cost, but we didn't really have the ability to scale it. You know, we did that for a while and then started opening up a few more stores so that we would be able to produce. Cause that was the thing that we realized was that, for example, if I want to make sweaters and let's say I have to make 300 sweaters, if I have one store, or even two stores or even five stores, that's a lot of sweaters right. per store. So if I'm not going to be a big wholesale brand, then I need to really focus on how I'm going to open up more stores. And about four years ago, I, I found an investor that sort of shared interest in terms of how to grow the business and made an investment. And we use that investment to really grow out our retail footprint and also hire some key people. And those people really felt strongly also about e-commerce. And we started investing in that you know, infrastructure. Definitely. If you look at where the company is today, which is 22, how many stores? 20 stores plus the e-commerce. 20 so stores 21. plus e-commerce. Yeah. And then there are the licenses in... Yeah, and then there's also six stores in Japan. And then there's also an optical license. And there's right. four optical stores as well. Right. Let's say if you look at the industry today compared to where it was when you started it with just a single boutique, what are some of the biggest things that have changed to you? And also maybe what are some that have always been the same or kind of endured? The whole direct-to-consumer piece is definitely new. And I think that, you know, whether you're Casper mattresses or eyewear or sheets or I'm just thinking of all the verticals that are, I mean, it's pretty much everything or shoes, sneakers, suits, tailored shirts. I mean, pretty much everyone is trying to reestablish what their value proposition is. You know, what's interesting, too, is that you have a lot of people that are sort of going out there and like, we are direct to consumer. We don't even need retail stores. We're not about retail stores. And then all of a sudden, 
there's like nothing but retail stores opening up, you know, for the next few years, because I think that people realize that people like to touch and feel things and it's a big part of the story. Yeah. We glossed over a bit kind of that store expansion from one to the 28, I guess it is today, but what was kind of the thinking behind where you would open? Where is that Stephen Allen customer in America, in Japan, and kind of how those all unfolded as it grew? Well, we had a partnership in Japan early on before I ever made anything. So it was really, it was probably like 94 through 99 or something like that. And the company ended up going out of business. They bought a lot of real estate and they just couldn't. But I did learn about the Japanese market that time. I became fascinated with it because I just thought it was really interesting that there was an obsession about American fashion in Japan. And then there was a Japanese take on American fashion. Mm -hmm. And for me, I thought that the Japanese take on American fashion a lot of times was more interesting than the American take on American fashion. Mm -hmm. And so I was influenced by it. And so it became this kind of interesting process where I still go to Japan like twice a year and I talk to different retailers there. And, you know, sometimes I'll hear that their trip to New York visiting my store was what influenced them Mm -hmm. to open a store in Japan. And I'm thinking like, well, I was influenced by you guys, you know, like coming out here and seeing, you know, this eclectic mix of products being retailed together. So my version was just my own. It was still eclectic. It was just a different eclectic mix, but it sort of showed me that it was possible. Totally. And I think it speaks to this whole idea of that this stuff is very much a circle. And there's always an interesting question of like, where does it start? Like, where do the trends start and all that? And it seems always a challenge to kind of identify, is it top down, is it bottom up, or is there really some kind of mishmash of the two that's just kind of constantly Mm -hmm. regenerating? I'm curious early on, given that you said you didn't really have that fashion background, like what was that design process like for the private label? So for me, it was going to the factory because I didn't have a pattern maker either at the beginning. So asking the factory to make the patterns for me, and then I would go in there And obviously I couldn't look at the pattern and say, oh, this needs to be adjusted, but I would look at the sample and then if it didn't feel right, if the collar felt big or small or whatever, I would just tell them and we would make corrections and then they would make a new pattern and that's how we did it. I'm curious to talk a bit about kind of the production side in terms of, I assume when you started the the clothes made in New York and then how has that kind of changed and also evolved because you mentioned a pair of pants made in Japan and kind of how some of those production Mm -hmm. sources, I guess, grown or evolved as business has. Yeah, I mean, in the beginning, we were making, for example, shirts and pants here in New York. And I think New York is great for making shirts and pants and blazers. But if you try to make a T-shirt in New York, what you realize is that New York City is not meant for making T-shirts, nor is it made for making jeans. You can do it, but your cost to cut and sew a T-shirt is going to be exorbitant. And actually, the quality won't be very good Mm -hmm. either because it's not made for that. Whereas, for example, in L.A., that's all these factories are doing all day long is making T-shirts, sweatshirts and jeans. So for us, we didn't really have those connections in the beginning with the West Coast factories. And so it took us a while. We had to get to a certain scale also, because if you go to a t-shirt factory and you say you want a hundred t-shirts, they're not going to even talk to you. So it took us a while to get to a certain scale where we could do it. And then now today, I mean, we, we have made stuff in LA. We also have made stuff in Japan and Peru and so forth. And so we try to just go to the best who can do it the best. And so made in USA is important, but I always feel like it's hypocritical for us, even though I would guess about 60 or 65% of everything we sell is made in the USA. But if you go out and you're like, yeah, we're all about made in the USA. And then, you know, you pick up a pair of pants that's made in Japan. It's like, well, well, I thought you were all about USA, you know, and it sounds hypocritical. But the reality is we do try to make as much as we can. But if we can make something better in Japan, I mean, certain things all over the world, people do really well. There's places that do swim 
you know, and that's their thing. And there's places that, you know, just like sweaters, you can make a sweater in New York, but it's going to cost three times as much. Right. And so for me, I think that there needs to be a really great price to value relationship with everything that you're buying. Definitely. One of the other shifts that you alluded to is kind of the shift in eyewear. And I'm curious to talk a bit about that and kind of how that started and mm-hmm. what maybe is different about that than the clothing and kind of what were some of those lessons or interests there? Eyewear was one of the extensions that I thought would make sense because we sold other designer eyewear in the store. And we were approached by this guy, Andrew, who asked if we wanted to do our own sunglasses, which I thought would be interesting because the other option would be to do a license kind of like you know, a typical license mm-hmm. with uh, Luxottica or Safflo or one of these big companies. And that's normally what people do. But usually you're a global brand uh, when you do it. A lot of times you don't have control as much in terms of who's going to be selling your products. And so for us, we've always been so hands-on, you know, even working with factories here in New York and Midtown and so forth. So this was an opportunity to be involved in the design process ourselves And then, you know, they could sort of help us from the standpoint of they had a technical designer on their team as well. So we would kind of co-design them and then we put them in our stores and we sold them and they had their own website, which is different than our website, you know, just for optical and sun. And now they host sell them and they also have their own standalone stores. Mm -hmm. You know, it's really evolved. Each thing has led to another thing, kind of like the way that in my business, the stores led to the showroom, which led to the brand. In their case, it was making private label glasses for me led to having the website, led to wholesaling, led to having their own store. Gotcha. Would you say that Stephen Allen customer today is different or similar to where it was when you started? Or Yeah, I mean, I think that the customer's grown up a little bit as I've grown up, and I think that my tastes have probably changed a little bit. And we have a pretty wide base, though, in terms of age. Mm-hmm. And, and we kind of have a wide base also in terms of I guess, demographic. For example, we have a store in Los Feliz, you know, which is very much like, I guess, like having a store in Williamsburg, Mm -hmm. you know, and then we have a store in Greenwich, Connecticut, which is like, you know, having a store in the Hamptons or something. It's a different customer completely, but yet we're able to, to appeal to both people. And I think it's because, you know, there's a commonality in terms of interest in quality, which is a big thing. So that's a core focus and it's Hmm. not cheap fashion. It's not fast fashion. And then it's innovative but it's not trendy. So I think that like when we think about the design process, I always try to think of understated, uh, essential, effortless clothing. And our take is this real subversive take on classics, really. I'm curious kind of what some of your favorite pieces are of all the stuff you've made over the years. I guess every time we go into a new category, I get really excited. Like we have a great new pan, like the Arc Chino this season, you know, great fitting, great quality pants made in Japan. I really like that. On the women's side, we have this fleece, but it's made out of wool. Hmm. It's like a pullover. I always forget the names, but it's fantastic. We just did another order of them. And that's the thing is even when we recut something, we're still talking about small numbers Mm -hmm. relative to what I guess people would normally do. You know, like if you go to a department store, any of those brands, like a cut could be in the thousands. You know, for us, a recut could be 100 or 200 units. And so as the business grew, you had the private label, you had the wholesale stuff. And kind of how did that mix evolve in terms of what the brands you start bringing in, the designers you'd represent, and then also kind of how the private label kind of supplement those efforts as well as the company grew to where it is today? We were kind of like juggling all these different balls in the air. It is really fun, but I feel like we've come to 
this realization, you know, lately that we just, we can't do everything. We just can't (laughs) and do it the way we want to do it. And, you know, now that, you know, e-commerce obviously is, is a big, big part of the business and you're able to measure things and you realize, oh, wow, well, why isn't the conversion higher? Why isn't this better? Why isn't this better? And the more you dig in, the obvious comes there, which is that you can't do everything. You know, you can't have 500 brands and expect to do all those brands mm-hmm. of service. You just can't. You know, you have to kind of really pick, even though for us, it's always been the edit. You know, even if we have a lot of brands, it's still the process into those brands is pretty intensive, but becoming more, more and more edited. And just, this is what we stand for. What were some of the surprises as you just kind of dug into this whole career deeper of stuff you weren't expecting, or that was easier or harder than, than you would have expected kind of going in? Every time we shifted, time I went into a different vertical from the stores to the showroom, from the showroom to the line, you know, having to learn all those things, there was lots of surprises, you know. There's also surprises as we opened up stores throughout the U.S. because you have different markets, like Portland, Oregon is very different than Dallas or Connecticut or whatever. Obviously, retail has been somewhat of an anchor to the brand. Is it fair to say that was the option since the internet wasn't really doing its thing back when you started, like of just how to start selling? Again, how that has evolved or what role retail place for you up to today and then also where you kind of see that going as well. Yeah, I mean, I think for us, retail is really important. It is the physical presence. It's the manifestation of who we are. And and it's also something that, you know, despite how e-commerce grows, our retail business is still growing and we've never had a, a shrinking year mm-hmm. in retail. So that's really good. And there's a lot of information that comes from there too. You know, when you sell online, you know what you sold and what you didn't sell, but you don't necessarily know what you could have sold or what the reactions are. You know, you maybe you do, maybe you have right. customer surveys or whatever, but if you've got a, a really good line of communication with your stores and managers and all that, you know, you might know what you could have sold or what the problems were, things like that. You talked before about kind of the value in terms of that edit and towards of the assortment. Has the internet made it harder for an assortment or, or that editing to stand out or to differentiate with the customer or there's still kind of opportunities to basically just edit better than anyone else and kind of what is the power of assortment today? Yeah, I mean, I think the internet is a a tremendously helpful tool also for brick and mortar because, you know, when people are going into a store, they're going online first and they're kind of scoping out what you have and then they're making their edit. So I think there's a lot that we can do. I'm not at all content with how things are at the moment. You know, I feel like there's a lot of positive changes that we can make. Totally. And I'm sure that kind of gets to personalization and some of those more kind of mm-hmm. forward looking sure. things that start to again, kind of put that the right products in front of the right person. You've also done some investing as well. Yeah. I mean, for me, the investing side has just been an interest in technology. I, I've always been really interested in that. And as it relates to fashion initially, and then lately, it's really as it relates to anything that to me is like a game changing technology that I think will make people's lives better. You know, and that's been the the common thread, I guess. I'm not a huge investor in terms of dollars, but I guess I've been lucky in that a lot of companies have approached me about kind of strategic advice. And so some of those companies, they might give me stock in the company. Some of them I buy, you know, invest in directly. The different areas are kind of health and wellness, fashion, home, medicine, real estate. I mean, there's yeah, <laughs> a, there, lot. There yeah. Different, a lot of different uh, verticals, but 
Yeah, I'm, I'm curious kind of what you look for. In yeah, like, realm. well, my first investment was in a company called Refinery29. So I was their first investor. Mm. And to me, I was just really impressed when they were starting. I thought that it was a game-changing concept. At that time, it was sort of a thought, will it be commerce or will it be editorial? And I remember having those conversations and it was sort of like one camp was going one way, one camp was going the other way, but starting out, it was definitely a lot more expensive to go the commerce side versus the editorial side and the editorial side really won and they've done fantastic as a company. It was great. I mean, I think that the initial funds that I invested went into getting them a used air conditioner on Craigslist <laughs> and a not even a basement office space, but a sub-basement office wow. space, so two flights below ground, <laughs> and they've come far from that. So yeah, it's been great. Very cool. Business of Fashion is another one yep. in the same space. Uh, yeah, they're doing fantastic. Yeah, so we touched a bit on it, but what's kind of the general thought about these direct-to-consumer brands? I think we saw some that were you know, saying retail's dead, we're never going to open. And I think, as you said, we've now seen the reverse of that trend where uh, they're like, you know, maybe we will. And then you, know, you blink and they have 12 stores open. Did that kind of 180 make sense to you as obvious? Or do you think there were kind of opportunities for these brands, some of these brands to exist purely online? I think some of them could exist purely online. You know, some of it comes from just investor valuations. You know, some of it really stems from valuations because a lot of companies are raising money and you're guaranteeing this hyper growth. And how are you going to get this hyper growth? Like if you're raising money at a crazy valuation, you know, yeah, I mean, online could be great and you could grow a lot, but are you going to grow 10,000% in, you know, six months or whatever, you know, you're a slave to your own sort of uh, valuation (laughs) kind of. Totally. Um, so I think that a lot of these companies could do it if they raised at a lower valuation. If they didn't have as high expectations, they could grow very healthy. In some cases, that would be better for the companies in the long term. In some cases, the high growth is better because the idea is just you got to get there quicker because there's too many people that are going to chase the same thing. So if you can get a dominant market share quicker, then that's going to be better. Totally. You know? I'm curious on the note of kind of this idea of like scale today in terms of I feel like given, as you said, the valuation and all this rise of venture capital, there are some companies that they, they set these expectations that they have to get to this size and this size and this size. And there's almost been somewhat of a loss of kind of this like entrepreneurship from a small business perspective, which is kind of how you started. And I'm curious, do you think those expectations are sustainable or do you think there will be some sort of correction of where? Oh, well, there's a correction now. I mean, yeah. you're seeing a lot of companies either go out of business or they're having down rounds, which you didn't see before. Right now, all of a sudden it's like, well, wait a minute, you're not growing at 10,000%. You only grow at 5,000%. You know, that's not what we signed on for. So now we're going to give you more money, but at half the valuation or a quarter of the valuation, you know, because they're starting to get nervous. Totally. When you started, did you have any goal for scale or size? that you wanted to get to? No, I just knew that I always wanted to get better, you know, and I always thought size for me would be a way to get better, you know, because if I can get bigger in a smart way, then I can hire really good people and I can make the products that I want to make and the factories that I want to make them and, you know, the minimums. And, you know, for me, it was always a matter of that. And obviously I always wanted to grow, but I never wanted to grow in a reckless way. Right. For the sake of growing. Yeah. Gotcha. At what point in kind of this evolution did the website and the e-commerce start to come in and then when did it kind of really start to kind of grow? And It's been in for a while. It's just that, you know, again, because I mean, I have one investor in the company and, you know, money mostly went to retail and e-commerce. But in terms of the additional growth on e-commerce, it's just it's a very, very capital intensive mm-hmm. more than what people think, because I, I think that most people think, well, e-commerce should be like killing it. Not, right. not from the gross side, but from the profitability side. And just, you know, a few things to think about there would be that 
you know, when you have a store, you have rent and you have salaries and then you have your sales minus your cost of goods sold and that's your right. profit. And with e-commerce, there's a lot of costs as, as well. And I think most people don't really understand, you know, you have your platform costs, which could be extremely high. You have your marketing costs and then you have, you know, every single product has to be, there needs to be a purchase order, needs to go into the system, it needs to be photographed, retouched, styled, copywritten. Then the product has to go to a warehouse, come out of the warehouse, and then every single touch point, there's a cost. And, you know, at the end of the day, I would say that most retailers that I know are trying to reduce the amount of returns as much as possible. So the way to do that is having better photography, better copy, more comments. Now, there's a lot of things that people are doing now, whether it's video or anything else, but they all cost a lot. So I think I read somewhere that Net-A-Porter just became profitable, like last year or the year before, you know, with an enormous amount of sales. And so it's tricky, you know, it's just a tricky business. Did you ever sell products on Amazon? Yeah, there was like one season or two seasons where we were approached on the men's side and they were trying to build up uh, Amazon fashion. It was the very beginning. So I think it was me and Jack Spade and maybe Theory Men's or something. Uh, there was a few brands mm -hmm. that were being sold there and, you know, it was new for them. So I think the customers didn't really know where to even look. It was hard to find. Did you learn anything about your own business or about Amazon during that trial period or... I learned, I guess at that time, that there wasn't really the expectations. It was a very long-term vision of yeah. what it could become, and they weren't so obsessed on short-term profits. It seemed with any of the brands that they were selling there, because when I saw the sell-through initially, I thought, oh, that's not what it should be. It should be better than hmm. that. And there wasn't as much of a concern, I think, because it was new. And it right. was just sort of like, they're going to dabble in this. It was the very beginning and they're learning the business. And I think that, you know, they've been so successful in terms of that approach. And then eventually they get to a certain level and then they turn on the machine. Yeah. You worked with them for a season or two and then kind of stopped doing that. Yeah. Just, well, it didn't seem like it was yeah. at that time. It wasn't really the focus. I think yeah. that now they're putting a lot of resources into fashion for them because obviously the margin's better. And I think that, you know, they can use their own logistical infrastructure to help having watched them evolve and, and learn is there an opportunity where you think you start working with them or you go back to them or is it a brand such as yours it doesn't is it meant to not necessarily i mean yes or, or no i mean it really just depends on how i guess how they're evolving and the nature of, i mean i buy a ton of stuff on amazon you know because of the ease of shopping and so if i felt like there would be integrity there and we can sort of do some things and use their advantages and it's possible. I totally. Mean. How has the role of kind of wholesale evolved since you started? And kind of what value do you see it as today? I guess both as someone who buys wholesale from other brands and also someone who sells wholesale their own private label. That hasn't really changed that much, except that you've got a technology like Jor, which is mm -hmm. um, really helping facilitate that process where a buyer can look at line sheets online and be able to place orders and take notes and things like that. And they're really, they're one of the top companies in that. But you still see a viable path for brands to build basically a wholesale driven brand, even though there's all kind of this noise about the direct to kind of cut it down the middleman and all that stuff. Yeah, there, there still is. I mean, retail is still the dominant, you know, no matter how much online is, I mean, it's still the bulk of sales come from retail. Right. And so I think that it goes back to really having special product and being able to tell your story. And I think that for me, if I go to a store and I feel like 
they're just trying to sell stuff that they think is sellable and there's not really a point of view, then as a consumer, I'm not interested in that store at all. Gotcha. I'm curious if you have any thoughts on kind of the crop of students kind of coming out into the industry today in terms of whether they want to be designers or, or work in it. Given kind of all that's happening, whether it be globalization or promotionality or all these different things, what's kind of your sense of how educational institutions are putting out the crop of people today? I think New York has always been known, I mean, comparatively to Belgium and Paris and, you know, a lot of other places, it's very practical driven, FIT and Parsons. I mean, Parsons are maybe a little bit more theoretical, mm -hmm. but they're both really kind of real world. This is what the business is and you're going to go in there. And it's not so idealistic, mm -hmm. you know, only. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that students are going out there with a not overly rosy picture. And so they really have to want to do it. And it should be that way, really. You should really want to mm -hmm. do it. And you shouldn't think it's like, oh, well, I'm going to be a designer and get rich quick or something. Right. Because it just, it won't work. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. I'm curious to talk a bit about kind of Fashion Week and how, I guess, New York Fashion Week specifically has evolved in terms of when did you start kind of participating or, or so I've yeah. never actually had a fashion oh. show like a runway yeah. show we, we've had presentations right. during fashion week and uh, we started that maybe 10 years ago or something and we don't do it every single season either we kind of do it occasionally when there's something like a new message mm -hmm. to be said and that's kind of how we use it but we really we try not to spend a lot on that because I feel like brands can really go crazy with fashion shows and can spend 100,000, 200,000 on a show, you know, easily. I'm a mentor at the CFDA right. and, you know, so I get to meet with a lot of other designers and you see that a lot where uh, designers are spending a tremendous amount on showing. So I think it's also certain types of designers, you know, certain designers are love. I mean, that's what they live for is, is having a fashion show. You know, and those designers tend to do better at that than the designers that are really, you know, I just want to be in the back. I want right. to do my collection. I want to do that. Right. Not take so, the bow. Yeah. Gotcha. Men's Fashion Week now as well as a separate component of that. Of, have you participated or, or watched the periphery? No, we usually do it because we don't do men's only presentations. So the closest that we get to that is we'll have a, a shoot and we'll invite editors to our shoot mm. during Men's Fashion Week. And that's about as close as we've come. But, you know, we'll either do co-ed or we'll do that. Gotcha. And if you look kind of the next one, two, three years ahead, what are kind of the hopes or aspirations to take the business to that next place? I mean, right now for us, I mean, we're seeing a huge, you know, momentum shift going on in terms of our own brand, which it's just how you look at it, really putting our brand out there and also other brands that we really like that we think work well to sort of surround our brand with versus just being a multi-brand retailer mm -hmm. and having a brand as part of that, you know, so it's, it's slightly different in both cases. We have our brand and other brands, but I think that giving a little bit more importance to our brand than we did before, I think that's really the shift. Gotcha. And then if you look back on kind of what we talked about in the beginning, which was, you know, helping these designers kind of build out their careers and, and kind of take those, those first accounts, are there any brands that come to mind where you were kind of played a really integral role in helping them launch. I know you mentioned one. I mean, there's been so many brands yeah. that we, yeah, Rebecca Dannenberg, Daryl Kay, Isabel Moran, I think we were one of the earliest ones. Kate Spade even, you know, back in the day, we were one of the probably five first retailers to carry them. Was Warby Parker one of them too? Warby, yeah. We launched Warby, I think we were the first retail store huh. to sell them. I had approached them about building out a little kiosk for them in the store yeah. and they didn't really wholesale, you know? So it was like, no, we don't do that. We're just direct to consumer. 
And I said, well, I think that, you know, what about all these people that want to try it on? And this would give them an opportunity to do it. And they said, well, the margin's not right for that. And so we worked out an arrangement where, yeah, I mean, virtually I didn't make any money selling them. Hmm. But as a retailer, I thought it would be beneficial because I thought it would bring traffic into the store. And it did. And I thought it was a complimentary product. And it was. And so we had like a big launch party for them at that time. And we built out little point of sale kiosk. But unfortunately, we couldn't really give it the attention that it deserved at that time because, you know, we weren't staffed for it. We needed really a full-time person to just be focused on that. So we kind of took a hiatus from that for about a year or so before we started going into eyewear. And for you, I think what's been kind of the most exciting or rewarding part of this, if you look back of kind of where everything started and then where it is today, which is obviously so much bigger than just to keep going. For me, each time we hit a milestone like this year, you know, being awarded, you know, Men's Designer of the Year with uh, three other designers by GQ, you know, that was a big deal for me. And, you know, when we moved into this office, this was a big deal for me. It's uh, kind of a dream space. And I don't know, there's definitely been lots of milestones when we opened our first store outside of New York. Mm. That was one. You know, I always think about different press and things that have come up, whether it's a New York Times article or or, you know, anything, a video that came out or, or something like that. Where totally. That, so it's a little, it's the little things yeah. that add up. I'm excited about this year, this year being 2007. Mm. Well, we're in 2016, but I'm <laughs> very excited about the changes that are going to be in place for 2017. You know, even with retail stores, I think you need to like reinvent yourself. And so the year of 2017 will be our reinvention. So I think it'll be exciting for people to see. Very cool. Well, I look forward to watching that. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the 12th episode of the Loose Threads podcast. Join the newsletter at loosethreads.xyz and feel free to leave a review on iTunes. We always appreciate it. Steven is always great to talk to just because he's seen so much both from the brand side, from the wholesale side, from the showroom side, from the investor side, and tends to have a really good pulse on where the industry is. It's also great talking to someone who's really the first to do many things that we now assume as a given. We have a great roster of upcoming guests, including Matt Orley of His Namesake Brand, Stephen Agno, the co-founder of Lumi, and Amanda Curtis, the co-founder of 19th Amendment. Thanks again for listening and talk to you soon.